This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Roger Jackson, author of Rebirth, A Guide to Mind, Karma, and Cosmos in the Buddhist World, published this year by Shambhala. This first-ever guide to ideas and practices surrounding rebirth in Buddhism covers the historical context for the Buddhist teaching on the topic, explains what Buddhists believe is actually reborn and where, surveys rebirth-related practices in multiple Buddhist cultures, and considers whether all Buddhist traditions agree about what happens after death. This book also addresses interpretations of rebirth in modern Buddhist contexts and recent scientific attempts to document reincarnation in conversation with Buddhist beliefs. It is, in short, the first truly comprehensive overview of rebirth across the major Buddhist traditions, written by a leading scholar and teacher of Buddhism. Roger Jackson is the Professor Emeritus of Asian Studies and Religion at Carleton College, He has nearly 50 years of experience with the study and practice of Buddhism, particularly in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. His special interests include Indian and Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, meditation and ritual, Buddhist religious poetry, religion and society in Sri Lanka, the study of mysticism, and contemporary Buddhist thought. Roger is a highly respected and beloved scholar, Dharma teacher, and writer. He has authored many scholarly books and articles and is a frequent contributor to Lion's Roar, Buddha Dharma, and Tricycle Magazines. Roger Jackson, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. It's great to have you back. When we're here to talk about your uh, very latest book, I think just out in a week or so, called Rebirth, A Guide to Mind, Karma, and Cosmos in the Buddhist World. Yeah, and to um, uh, frame this up, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start with a recent story because I was having lunch with a friend of mine that I hadn't seen for a while, and he has, in the last year or two, taken up a more serious practice of a forest tradition of Theravadan uh, Buddhism. And as part of the conversation, he brought up the topic of rebirth, which was coincidental since we were in the middle of reading your book. And he made an interesting comment. He, Although he wasn't really uh, affecting a strong position one way or the other on the topic, he did mention that he had gone to a talk at Spirit Rock that a Buddhist teacher was giving, and someone asked her about what rebirth meant or how to understand rebirth. And her comment was, oh, that's, that's really just kind of a folk story or a, a mythology that, uh, you know, exists to, you know, for people who are not educated and we don't really have to worry about that. And my friend said, you know, that when he heard that, it's like the energy kind of stopped and he kind of, he felt put off and he was put off because there was a kind of, um, uh, I don't know, condescension implied there and a glibness about the answer and not really 
willing to examine or to confront or to wrestle with this problem of what rebirth means in the Buddhist context and just kind of or, a brush or in any context. Yeah, yeah, or any context, or just brushing it off. But then what was interesting in the conversation is later <clears throat> we were we were still on the theme of uh, rebirth and he was affecting a kind of what you might call a um, <clears throat> provisional versus ultimate argument, <clears throat> saying that, you know, rebirth is great as a provisional truth and it, and it helps you understand, you know, kind of an ethical basis for action because karma gives you an ethical sense of action, which we'll obviously get into in this conversation, much like heaven and hell do in the Christian tradition. But beyond that, there's a higher truth, like the Four Noble Truths, in the way he was describing it. And I think in your book, you describe Mahayanists as describing emptiness as this higher understanding that goes beyond uh, the question of rebirth. But again, you know, as we discussed, I kind of pointed out that, you know, there, it feels like even with that framing, there's a, there's a subtle creeping in of a Western sensibility that, uh, oh, these things, these things don't have a literal truth, uh, and we are free to recontextualize them from a modern sensibility. And again, I'm not sure if that's right or wrong, but it just kind of raises this question. And I think one of the things that your book does is sensitize us to these moves that people make actually throughout the history of Buddhism to contextualize, recontextualize, grapple with rebirth as this element of the Buddhist canon. So, was so that I, well, I, so I want to, I want to just uh, jump in here and, and ask you about your motivation. You, you, you described that in the uh, preface or introduction, um, uh, how it happened, but I'm wondering if responding to these considerations is, that Stuart just outlined from his personal experience a few days ago, but also grounded, of course, in a long exposure to questions about rebirth. I'm wondering if that was the motivation, the, the principal or a principal motivation for you to write this book. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that apart from the particular circumstances that led me to write the book, which is that I wrote a an essay for a volume called Secularizing Buddhism that in its first draft form was about three times as long as it was supposed to be. And the editor for that said, hey, we'll use this, turn the rest into a book. And I said, okay, but that's of course not, not the, the, the reason I would have been writing that essay to begin with. The reason I wrote the book is because in a way, the whole question has been a, you might say a koan to me, my entire Buddhist life. Um, the very first day, I guess I, the, the, the very first day I think I began to take Buddhism seriously was at a monastery on a hilltop outside Kathmandu in 1974. And the very first teaching given by Lama Tupanzopa Rinpoche was mind is beginningless. Now this, did not intuitively make sense to me as someone raised in a Western skeptical scientific uh, tradition. And I've got to say that although it was presented sort of as fait accompli there, and I later began to examine various arguments that purported to prove that mind was beginningless, which is simply another way of saying we've lived before and uh, quite probably we will live again, i.e. there is rebirth. Um, this, this became something I, I struggled with, you know, both as a scholar, 
So I did a, a dissertation and then a, a book on the argument by Dharmakirti, a, a great 7th century Indian Buddhist philosopher. Um, but also as a Buddhist practitioner, um, I, I wrestled with the question, which already I think is implicit in, in your remarks, Stuart, that uh, the, the, the implicit question whether you can actually be Buddhist if you don't believe in rebirth. And I think this is exactly what uh, a, a plenitude of modern Buddhists face. So although I've gone on and done other scholarly projects uh, in various directions, um, and, and in terms of my personal practice, I've forged on anyway, it's, this has remained, as I said, a kind of koan for me, um, a, a very basic question about very basic claims that I say the Buddhist tradition has been making from the beginning. So maybe maybe as a uh, just way of framing this, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, what you mean or what the Buddhist tradition means by the term rebirth. For yeah. people who are listening to this who may not be quite so familiar. Right, right. Now, I would say at the outset that for our purposes, and actually for my purposes in the book as well, we can use the words... The, the term rebirth more or less synonymously with reincarnation, which I think is a, probably a better known term uh, for, for most people in the West. Certain Buddhists get, get all, all upset because incarnation to them implies that there is some soul, some unchanging soul or Atman that gets incarnated. But I, I think for, for most purposes, it's not important to make that distinction because it's it's quite clear to me anyway, uh, people may reasonably disagree, that uh, the Buddha, as best we can discern him from what generally are regarded as reasonably early texts, um, did believe that, in fact, in fact, he had had countless previous lives. And in fact, on the night of his enlightenment, he famously remembered all of them. Um, he also, on the night of his enlightenment, got a kind of clairvoyant ability to see how other beings were, how, what their karma was like, that is what the quality of their actions was like, and where they were likely to be born or going to be born on the basis of their actions. So it's, it's, a, it's a very basic notion in in early Buddhist traditions and scriptures, and it was in part a, a, a very basic notion for Buddhists at the beginning, including the Buddha, because it was part and parcel by about the middle of the first millennium BCE, it was part and parcel of the, the kind of elite Indian view of the world, the cosmology, which people often describe uh, as uh, just as a kind of shorthand as the samsara karma moksha cosmology, which says that the basic human or sentient situation or pr the human problem, the human predicament and the predicament of other sentient beings as well, is that we are born again and again. Um, almost not exactly in a circular sense, although uh, what things come around again and again in various forms, but, but in the sense that we, we continue to take birth and birth is fundamentally unsatisfactory. We can be born, you know, in, in a very uh, pleasant realm. We can be born as humans who have many advantages, or we can be born in a hellish realm or an animal realm. That's not so great, but regardless of how high or low we might be on this particular in the, within this samsaric scheme it's it's it is not some kind of everlasting happiness 
no, no final liberation. And the, the basic analysis, although it, it oversimplifies it to put it this way, but the, the basic analysis by Hindu traditions and Jain traditions and Buddhist traditions back, you know, as far as we can trace their literature, um, at least into the you know, first millennium BCE, is that it's our actions that propel us into this rebirth or that rebirth, or for that matter, that lead us to this experience or that experience within this life. That's a lot easier, of course, for most people to comprehend and make sense of. Uh, you know, you, 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 you perform particular actions and you see the results, sometimes negative, sometimes positive. Um, and, uh, you know, for Buddhists, uh, as, as for most people in ancient, the ancient India of the Buddha's time, uh, it was presumed that in some sense there was, I, I, I use the word very advisedly and cautiously, but there was something like a soul. There was something that continued after the death of the body. Anyway, Hindus called it Atman. The Jains called it the Jiva. Uh, Buddhists eh, were, were not, wouldn't use those terms with any great comfort, yeah. but they, they would talk about elements of the mind, say, that continued past the death of the body. And, and when one got one's karma and one's understanding of things in order and performed certain practices, you know, living ethically, meditating, analyzing the nature of reality, one would be in a position then to entirely escape this wheel of samsara as it's often depicted both artistically and and uh, otherwise and and attain a state that you know again hindus would call moksha or or mukti liberation buddhists typically call this nirvana which literally means extinction but is uh, uh, it's it, it oversimplifies it to simply say that it's you're being snuffed out um, so um so one of the things that uh, you outline very clearly in in this new book is is the um, uh, some of some of the ways in which Buddhists had to respond. I'm talking here early on in India about um, squaring the the uh, circle, as it were, of of their uh, the the famous Buddhist uh, doctrine of no self. That is, there there is nothing, no self that continues like a soul from from incarnation yeah. or life to life or whatever, um, with this idea that there can be something meaningful um, called rebirth and and the critics um, in the early centuries and later centuries, I guess, um, were ha were happy to throw this at at the Buddhists, and so the Buddhists had to respond. Yeah. So perhaps you, you can outline for our listeners a little bit of how how they responded to this apparent contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, in some ways, I mean, my students back when I was teaching at Carlton, this this would be this would always be the sixty four dollar question <laughs> at some point fairly early in a course on Buddhism is how can they talk about no self and yet believe in rebirth? It, it seems to be a contradiction in terms. And the Buddhist opponents in ancient India, which was pretty much everybody else, uh, <laughs> uh, even the materialists who didn't who didn't believe in any life after death, opposed the Buddhists, uh, and certainly the Jains and various stripes of Hindus did as well. All of them uh, pointed out that the the Buddhist doctrine of sort of impermanence and the absence of a self, especially if we think about these in radical terms. 
uh, seem on the face of it to destroy any way of describing something like memory, personal continuity, or moral responsibility. Whether in, not not just in just in, not just in say, future lives, but in this life as well, um, and Buddhists had they had a lot of splaining to do. As, <laughs> they have they um, they there were early on there were a variety of sort of uh, metaphorical or analogical attempts to explain how this could be the case using examples. So in a, there's a famous text called The Questions of King Melinda, uh, which is part of the Pali canon, but is clearly a somewhat, probably almost certainly later than some of the basic texts attributed to the Buddha. It's a conversation actually between a Greek king and, a, and an Indian Buddhist monk. And uh, the monk explains to the king, uh, when asked, how how is it that there can be no self and yet there is rebirth? Um, he uses a, a couple of different examples. Uh, uses the example of the way in which milk may come from a cow and then be transformed into yogurt and then eventually perhaps into butter and then the butter is clarified and becomes ghee. And they, you, you say, well, the ghee is not the same as what came from the cow's udder at the beginning. And yet there is, there is a sort of continuity within change involved there. The other, another example, perhaps an even more famous one, is, is that of lighting at, at, the, at the beginning of the night, uh, a sentinel will light a torch uh, and that that torch or or yeah can, candle we'll just call it a torch will eventually you know before it exhausts its fuel that the the flame from that torch will be used to light another torch and so on and that that torch used to light a third torch and so it goes and you say well is the you know is the is the torch that's burning then at dawn the same one as as the torch that was lit uh at at sunset, sort of yes and no. It's, it's a way of illustrating how in our ordinary experience, we can have, we encounter things that um, have a certain kind of continuity and yet are constantly changing. I mean, th those are analogical arguments, whether they're, uh, you know, how, how that would stand up to critical philosophical analysis is a, is a separate question. They're really just examples. But uh, another approach that Buddhists took uh, is, is enshrined in the entire tradition within Buddhism of what's called the Abhidharma. Uh, not an easy term to translate. Uh, some people will kind of gloss it as Buddhist phenomenology, Buddhist metaphysics, and so forth and so on. It's, it's a highly analytical ways of talking about the categories that were developed more informally no, no. in the earlier Buddhist scriptures. And every, every Buddhist tradition has Abhidharma, however much or little they may actually pay attention to it. But what's interesting about Abhidharma as, as technical and uh, frankly boring as it can be to read a lot of Abhidharma sometimes is it, it it actually represents quite apart from it being useful for more advanced meditators as a way of identifying categories of experience for them but even on a broader plane than that even it's a it's a kind of exquisite attempt to, I, I would say, produce something like a Buddhist process philosophy. That is a way of, un of explaining the world 
without recourse to permanent metaphysical substances of any sort, whether in ourselves as a as a uh, as an atman or unchanging self slash soul, or obviously in the things around us, uh, the, as Buddhists would put it, in terms of the great elements: earth, water, fire, air, space. Um, so uh, Abhidharma is an attempt <clears throat> to give a, a again a, a detailed account of how the world actually works on the basis of constant change, constant process, impermanence, and the absence of any concrete self. One other, I'll just mention one other uh, answer, if you will, that was given to this question. And this is, this is uh, within the Mahayana tradition, the famous uh, philosopher Nagarjuna, who probably lived in roughly the second century, perhaps the third of the common era, um, who actually does not agree, does not discuss issues like rebirth very much in his philosophy, which uh, those listeners who are familiar with it will know is 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 almost entirely critical um it, it, he does have texts that are more positive it should be said but the ones for which he's most famous his stanzas on the middle way and averting the arguments um both are attempts to to argue for the emptiness of all metaphysical and epistemological categories that so far had been developed by indian philosophers including buddhists and uh, the the temptation after reading even a few chapters uh but but if you get through the first 20 20 three chapters of Nagarjuna's famous stanzas on the middle way, the you're, you're tempted to throw up your hands and say, this is complete nihilism. And in fact, the 24th chapter, which is critical to understanding the entire text begins with, you know, six or seven verses uttered by an opponent who says, well, look, if everything, as you say, is empty, then, you know, the three jewels of refuge, the four noble truths, uh, all the spiritual attainments claimed for, you know, arhats and other Buddhist saints are, are are completely obliterated as well. We're left with nothing. And here, Nagarjuna <clears throat> kind of turns the tables and says, ah, you have completely failed to understand that the Buddhas always teach by recourse to two different levels of truth, the conventional truth and the ultimate truth. Um, you know, and basically, I'm paraphrasing a lot here, but according to the ultimate truth, emptiness is the case. But conventionally, uh, everything is the case. Everything that that is conventionally agreed upon is the case. And um, in fact, in in a couple of chapters later, Nagarjuna goes on to outline the the famous twelve links of dependent arising or mm -hmm. dependent origination, where which are a classic. Buddhist way of understanding the actual processes of rebirth. Um, and in his, in the other text, averting the arguments, uh, he, he basically, he makes the point at the very end in verse 70 that, um, you know, wherever, you know, whatever is dependently originated is empty. Um, and emptiness, in fact, allows for everything that is dependently originated to arise. Um, and he then adds in his commentary, his own commentary, and this means that, in effect, there are past and future lives, the various metaphysical and uh, soteriological claims of the Buddhists are, are all, all, uh, are, are all acceptable. Uh, so, 
So this is, uh, you know, this is, again, whether that's persuasive is, is a separate question. We could perhaps discuss somewhere along the lines here, somewhere along the line here. But it's it's an attempt to show that if you if you're nimble enough with understanding that claims about no self or emptiness are, in effect, ultimate level assertions about the way things actually exist, and that that does not not only does that not negate the conventional world, it's actually what permits the conventional world, because if things existed permanently, we, we couldn't make any sense of the of the conventional world, that that in fact, you, you just have to be able to oscillate or play between one level or, or the other. And this is so much of what's going on in Mahayana Sutra literature and and in the the more deeply philosophical portions of of uh, you know sort of Mahayana um, commentarial and, and treatise literature. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting when you you bring up the relationship to like a process formulation. It's it it suggests that there's not there's no thing that's permanent because uh, there's a uh, transformation that's constantly happening and yet that that um uh transformation in itself you know sort of like it might be even understood as a stand-in for emptiness you know the ultimate ultimacy is that there's this uh uh changingness that's always taking place and and emptiness is a i guess an understanding of that Mm -hmm. and I, I, what I want to relate this back to, and it's kind of uh, because there's an element that you describe in the book that I think is pretty important in terms of the role that rebirth plays is this, you use the term uh, karmic eschatology mm-hmm. and, and that the, uh, as I understood it, as you, as you laid it out, that the, you, you can have a notion of rebirth, which is, uh, uh, you know, sort of blind, you know, that, uh, we, we go into other lives just sort of like, uh, you, you die, the dice are rolled and you end up somewhere. Yeah. And then there's the idea that you can, that the, where you end up in a, in a rebirth is a consequence of actions that you take in this life. And that's, that's both true moment to moment, but also, uh, beyond the, uh, physical, uh, embodiment. Right. And that gives you an axis on which to begin to, uh, uh, articulate a moral sensibility. Mm-hmm. There's another sense, you know, related to this is that uh, I think the understanding of emptiness also uh, does a similar thing uh, in a different way. But um, I just in terms of the importance of the karmic eschatology, I'd like to just understand from you how rebirth became kind of like a defining or a purposeful explanation for why we should do, act in ways that would uh, actually lead to uh, uh, a harmonious way of being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think there's something of a chicken and egg problem here, perhaps, uh, in the sense that, you know, did, was rebirth developed as a theory um in order to account, you know, as a kind of extension of what we know about actions and their effects in our ordinary lives, um, or was, you know, rebirth presumed from the beginning and 
the the sort of innate human sense that the cosmos somehow must be just led to a detailed articulation of how particular actions led to particular results. I don't, I'm not sure there's a exactly a clear answer there, but it seems to me that that the the two are are intimately interrelated. And and your your point about the the karmic karmic eschatology is not a term that I invented. It's actually used originally by the great anthropologist uh, Gananat Obeyasekera in his book Imagining Karma, which is the uh, the sort of broadest cross-cultural uh, examination of ideas of karma and rebirth that I know and, and was a, a, ex- both extremely helpful and extremely inspiring as I tried to pull this book together. Anyway, a karmic es- eschatology, as he describes it, is uh, insists that whatever our post-mortem experience or destiny, if you will, will be, um, is fundamentally dependent on our karma, on the actions we have performed in this life. Um, and again, I guess I would just go back and reiterate the point that uh, while there were some Indians who doubted that we even survived death, uh, Indian materialists uh, known as Charvakas or Lokayatas, um, most Indian religious traditions you know, right up until and, and into the present day, have accepted that in some sense there is survival of death. So if we're going to try to, if we're if the cosmos is going to make any sense, <laughs> in, in rationally, if you will, then what what happens to us in the next life should should we hope not be utterly disconnected from things we have done in this life, just as the things we experience in this life our particular circumstances and, you know, social and uh, biological and other um, all, and, you know, not to mention in particular events we undergo are a result of things we have done in previous lives. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a grand rational scheme, but it's, but it's important to, to mention. And again, we can perhaps talk about this more at some point uh, or even now, if, if you're interested, but it's, you know, I, I outlined karma and many of the earlier Buddhist texts outline karma in, in a kind of uh, a simple way. I wouldn't say simplistic, but a, a way that sort of says, you know, for instance, the Buddha on the night uh, of, of his enlightenment and then in reporting other spiritual experiences that he had. And, you know, this is, for instance, found in the Pali Canon and in equivalent early texts that we don't have much in Indian languages, but were translated into Chinese. You know, he reports that he could see that those who, you know, basically those who who were living well, who practiced morality, uh, he could he could see through his clairvoyance that they were taking birth in pleasant realms, in fact, in heavenly realms, whereas those who acted badly, um, you know, who were violent, who were angry, who who otherwise uh, lived in ways that that were considered negative at the time. That that they were going to they were going to places that were far less pleasant. In fact, even hell or hells. Um, but but it's an important point about karma that it, it's famously said. I don't remember. I don't know the locus classicus for this, but I've heard a number of Tibetan teachers say that. Compared to understanding the doctrine of emptiness, um, understanding karma makes emptiness look simple. Uh, that <laughs> karma is, in fact, infinitely complex. Um, it, in fact, it's incalculable. And, and even the early texts <clears throat> say that one of the 
sort of imponderables or one of the one of the things that simply can't be grasped is all the details of karma unless you're a buddha um, so so there's, in fact, a, a great deal of calibration, a great deal of nuance to the ideas of karma. And again, even many of the early texts talk about <clears throat> not just good karma and bad karma, but all sorts of mixed karmas. And the later Abhidharma tradition, uh, figures like uh, Asanga and Vasubandhu, for instance, in the, in the Mahayana Abhidharma tradition. Well, Vasubandhu, his, his identity is slippery. Uh, but, but in any case, uh, you know, sort of third, fourth century Abhidharma figures, uh, you know, would, would talk literally about the heaviness of karma and how the actual karmic results of a particular act depended on such factors as who you were, who the object of your action was, um, the whether you the the degree of intentionality with which you performed it, the manner in which you performed it. And if it was a negative act, whether you regretted that negative act, whether you repeated the act and so forth. I mean, it just that's that only scratches the surface of how complicated it might be. And I, I give an example in the book uh, to illustrate this of. Uh, two two different inter- instances of what we would call killing, right? Which is one of the the basic uh, uh, no nos of Buddhist tradition, as in as in many uh, religious traditions. And I, I, I cite one example where I'm out walking, uh, you know, in the evening light. It's not easy to see, and I'm walking on a on a, a path or or some pavement, and I I, I take a step and. Uh, realize that, oh, I've just stepped on an insect, a spider or, or an ant or something. And I immediately feel regret for it because for one thing, as a Buddhist, I'm committed <laughs> to avoiding killing as much as possible. Um, and I say, I'm, I'm going to be more careful in the future and so forth and so on. Now, this is an instance of killing. It is a negative action. But because the intention was not fully there, yes, there was carelessness, but perhaps not the full intention to to commit the act. And there was immediate regret and a, and a, a kind of promise to try to avoid this in the future. You know, it's mitigated. The, the negativity is mitigated in various ways, um, and and I use as the as another example of killing the famous. Uh, and Americans will certainly know this. Uh, the the famous little uh, kids ditty that goes: uh, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her mother forty or gave her father forty one. Anyway, it's for one thing, it's matricide and parricide, which are. <laughs> <laughs> two of the most heinous crimes a Buddhist commit can commit. Uh, she she clearly intended to do it. She uh, repeated it, and she seemed quite pleased with what she had done. So, you know, this I mean, these these are exaggerated examples at at opposite extremes. But it just begins to show you how incredibly complicated karma is, and that we can never. You know, of course, there are many texts that will illustrate for us, you know, that by doing this, you're going to end up in this preta realm or this hell realm or this heavenly realm. But it's it's so, so complicated that uh, you you almost throw up your hands uh, at the end. Yeah, well, uh, uh, thank you for for uh, outlining all that, because because I, I've long wondered why it is uh, that, that this. um both appreciation of complexity that you've just described <clears throat> and it's elaborate, it's incredible elaboration um, that you've also just described to, to or outlined. Um, why is it that, 
the Buddhists ended up focusing on that so much. I'm not, I, I do understand, I think I understand, but you're the scholar of this um, area, at least of Indian thought, I think. Um, I'm wondering if the other uh, Indian uh, traditions that um, addressed karma and maybe had a, had a understanding in some ways like that of the Buddhists, did they elaborate these complexities in anything like the, the richness that, that Buddhism did? Um, my sense, but of course, we're talking about a vast literature here, so I, I can't mm -hmm. speak to all of it by any means. Mm -hmm. My sense is that in general, Hindu traditions did not go into the kind of detail I've right. just discussed. But, I, but again, I'm, I'm happy to be corrected about that. There's probably commentarial and treatise literature that goes into this in some detail. And, you know, even in, in uh, epics like the Mahabharata or the Ramayana, you can see the, the complexity of karma at play in, in mm -hmm. various ways, more, more sort of literary than, than philosophical and analytic. Um, but the kind of detail that the Buddhists went into analytically, I'm, I'm not as familiar with that from Hindu tradition. Let me just put it that way, okay? Because I don't want to <laughs> misrepresent it or, or uh, generalize too much about it. I would say, on the other hand, however, that the Jain tradition, which is a much smaller, but historically and uh, spiritually and philosophically very, very important uh, uh, religious tradition with India, within India, maybe goes into even more detail than mm. Buddhism does. Okay. Uh, and Jains had a, incidentally, you know, while, I mean, I, I would say that Hindus and Buddhists more, you know, broadly speaking, if we leave aside their, their differences over questions like self versus no self, um, you know, broadly tended to agree that, um, the actions that we performed, you know, in this life will have effects in the future, just as what we experience in this life is a result of what happened from the past in the past. I mean, Jains agree with that as well, but they, there is an, imp an important difference that sets the Jain tradition apart from pretty much all Buddhist traditions. I always have to say something like pretty much all Buddhist traditions and pretty much all Hindu traditions in that their notion of of sentience within the cosmos is much broader. Um, most Buddhists and Hindus uh, will, will accept that there are divine realms like God realms. There are ghost realms. There are human realms. There are animals. There's various hellish destinations of one kind or another. Um, but, but that, it's more or less limited to that in the Jain tradition, which some people have described as a kind of panpsychism. There's the notion that in some way, almost everything in the cosmos, including plants, uh, which are left out of the rebirth scheme, typically for Buddhists, um, as well as rocks and minerals and mountains and rivers, all have sentience to some degree. They've got fewer, quote, sense organs than uh, than the, the kind of sentient creatures we're most familiar with are. But but they do they do believe that there is soul, if I can use that term, jiva uh, in Sanskrit, uh, pretty much everywhere. Um, so they also have a different notion of karma um, only in the sense that uh, I mean, they they. They agree, like I think all these traditions agree, that karma is a problem. Um, 
but the the there's a tendency because Jain is such an Jainism is such an ascetic and austere tradition. Um, there's a tendency to think that the, the way they imagined karma. Buddhists would typically define karma when when you see it defined, like in a nutshell, they'll actually say it's intention. Karma is, is above all something mental. And if the intention is there, that above all is what gives you then the quality of the action for the Jains. And again, I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting here, but there's a tendency to think about, they think that each of us is or has this pure luminous soul or, or uh, yeah, soul that, that they call the Jiva that is somehow covered over um, seemingly obliterated by karma, which is, is almost like this substance that, that covers up our natural radiance and that through above all ascetic practices of some kind or another, um, we will begin to shed karma. So <clears throat> if, uh, you know, again, to oversimplify quite a bit, if in Buddhism and Hinduism, the question is whether we should, whether our karma should be good or bad, and we want to opt for the good at the very least, or we have to, you know, do more than that eventually, uh, for the Jain tradition, action itself is a problem. And, and in a way, we mm. have to stop doing. And, and when we stop doing, we stop accumulating. And, and by our austerities, we sort of burn up the previously <laughs> agglomerated karma around our uh, pure luminous soul. And eventually, all that's eliminated. The soul, the jiva, rises up to the, to the kind of the, to the top of the universe and resides there in perfection and in omniscience forevermore. Well, is it interesting, uh, a friend of ours who... Uh, studied deeply in the Buddhist traditions, but would he would read the Jain literature because it was contemporaneous with early Buddhism to understand better how people were, uh, you know, talking about these things. And he, he, I remember he related a critique that the Jains would use against the Buddhists, hmm. which base, uh, which gets to this whole issue of intentionality versus consequence, and hmm. and it was like. So if a Buddhist, uh, you know, throws a baby into the fire and thinks it's a log, you know, to a Buddhist, no problem. The intention was pure. <laughs> but from a giant perspective, uh, well, there's uh, karmic to, to be clear, that's the giant. That was yeah. the giant critique. <laughs> that, that, that was the giant. And, and I, I don't, we don't have to go into a, an explanation of how a Buddhist would respond. But it's uh, it's just a funny example of, of yeah, yeah. How, how these how these folks would be arguing back and forth. Right. Right. On, this, on the very issue that you're describing, right? No, very. I've never heard that. Uh, that that story. That's. <laughs> I mean, that's. Uh, you know, of course, what it illustrates is the ways in which uh, philosophical and or religious traditions typically not just not only characterize each other but caricature each other. Yeah. Right. They pick out. They pick out some point and give you the most uh, egregious example of what the consequences of that are. Um, yeah, that, 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 that hasn't seemed to disappear from our uh, worldview. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, so one of the, one of the things, so, you know, since we're, we're talking now about how giants would see uh, uh, a Buddhist belief or how um, uh, uh, the Brahmanical traditions would see it, but you also you know, we go into great detail in the book to talk about, how the notion of rebirth and and karma arise in the different Buddhist traditions because it's not it's not like one thing and that, and that, I think that's important to understand that you know it's, in fact your your book is, is has the most 
the greatest elaboration that I've seen of those of those distinctions. It's, it's, yeah. it's one of the features of the book. I yeah, and, and, I, and I think it'd be, you know, uh, in terms of just understanding, you know, if at at a high level, maybe we could talk now about how how these notions then find their way in Buddhism as Buddhism mm -hmm. moves from India to other cultures. And, uh, and then we can, we can kind of save, save, you know, the, uh, the lengthy discussion about, uh, what happens when it comes into the West for, uh, the, the latter part of the conversation. But, but be before we get to the West, you know, I'm interested in how, how you see rebirth and, and the notions of karma evolving or, Diverging. I don't know if diverging is quite the right word, but it's, yeah, but they, they see they have different flavors or different emphases. Yes, certainly they do. And uh, uh, I should say that uh, you know the book is, I would say, half or more. Probably two thirds of the book is actually given over to laying out the basics of karma and rebirth in the Indian traditions. Um, you know, both with the early traditions and with Mahayana. Uh, you know, some discussion of quote popular notions and all that, but but uh, I do have three chapters where I talk about you know in very broad terms, mind you, about uh, the ways in which karma and rebirth were understood first in what we'll call Theravada Buddhist culture. I focus in on Sri Lanka because that's the Theravadan culture I happen to know the best. Um, and uh, East Asian culture, where, again, I focus in primarily on China, and then inner Asian culture, as I call it, where uh, I focus on Tibet, uh, the one the one there that I know the best. And, uh, you know, I think I think a, 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 an important sort of general point to be made about the spread of Buddhism. And again, this risks oversimplification, but it, it, it perhaps it's, it's helpful anyway, is to recognize that when Buddhism left India, was taken from India, um, you know, primarily by, you know, on caravan routes and on sea by sea traders and by, you know, uh, itinerant monks who went up onto the Silk Road or, you know, went, went, went to this place or that, that it, it encountered in, in its travels, if you will, uh, two basic kinds of cultures or, or civilizations. These are all very fraught terms. And let's not, you know, go down a rabbit hole and arguing about what they all mean. But uh, just to give you an example, when uh, if, if we believe the chronicles and we believe, you know, archaeological evidence and so forth about a place like Sri Lanka, um, there was certainly a culture in Sri Lanka. There were there was some version of a language, whether it was written or not, uh, at the time Buddhism supposedly arrived is difficult to say, but Buddhism was seen by kings, early kings of the Anuradhapura kingdom in central Sri Lanka as a very effective uh, method, if you will, maybe a kind of powerful magic uh, maybe as an imposing intellectual superstructure, but anyway, as a way of helping to consolidate political and cultural power on the island. And I, I don't mean to be too cynical about this, but this is an element of it, clearly. Um, but, but, but Buddhism came from a, you know, the, the neighboring 
civilization, India, which has always loomed as a great shadow uh, over Sri Lanka, almost almost literally and certainly figuratively. And to the degree that these early kings of the Anuradhapura kingdom um, utilized Buddhism, were impressed by Buddhism, and put it to the service of whatever their projects were, cultural, political, and otherwise, we could say that Sri Lanka is what I call an uh, adoption culture. That is, it more or less adopted Buddhism wholesale. Now, of course, as in every single case where Buddhism has gone somewhere else outside India, and this happens even within India, it should be said, but um, there, there, of course, were local elements that got woven into the tradition. Buddhism's always been very flexible about that. They don't arrive and say, here are the Four Noble Truths, here's our cosmology, take it or leave it. They they're willing to work with whatever is on the ground, as it were, or up in the skies, and to make, uh, you know, make make do with that. But I, but I think it's fair to say that, especially the Singhala culture, as opposed to say the Tamil culture of Sri Lanka, was profoundly shaped by Buddhism, which has been there for well over two thousand years. And in that sense, to be Sinhalese in principle, was to be Buddhist. Now, it's more complicated than that since Christianity came and Islam, but we'll leave that aside because that's a modern uh, consideration. So that, that's, that's what I call an adoption culture. China, then, I'll just use that as another example. China, by the time when Buddhism arrived there in the maybe the first as early as the first century of the Common Era, China already had 2,000 years of civilization. It had two great and, and still developing, but, but already highly developed religious traditions in the Confucian and Taoist traditions, great literature, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Chinese considered themselves then, as they do now, to be the, you know, the Dongguo, the central kingdom. Um, and so for Buddhism, this, and, and you know, there's, there's I don't want to get into generalizations about, you know, Chinese culture, but um, much if you read a lot of early Chinese literature, um, there is a kind of a political sense to it. Uh, politics and, and rulership are very important. Filiality, as in many cultures, is, is very, very important. Family relations, all that. And here comes Buddhism, you know, up the Silk Road from India with, you know, celibate monks saying, oh, come join us in the monastery. And uh, Buddhism had a Buddhism was a tough sell in China uh, because of its monastic tradition, uh, because some of its ideas were just didn't seem consonant with uh, pre-existing Chinese ideas. Um, in part because it was a non-Chinese religion, it was it was a it was a it was a foreign religion, and that cast suspicion on it immediately for many people. And so the Buddhists had the Buddhists had to work, I would say, harder in some respects in China, and it took much longer for Buddhism to make inroads to the point where eventually it was considered one of the quote three great traditions of China, along with the Confucian. And the Taoists and the and the Buddhists did this, you know, partly by the brilliance of their cosmology and their philosophy, the subtlety of their thought, uh, partly because they had some wonderful magical practices. This should never be underestimated when it comes to the success of Buddhism anywhere. Um, 
but but in the process they had to they had to also adjust to the chinese focus on filiality for instance um and and the concern with political relations and things like that uh so we we could say then that china was an adaptation culture in which buddhism had you know the the chinese didn't adopt buddhism wholesale they you know the, the scholars will argue still whether you know the, the chinese you know chinese were transformed by buddhism or whether they transformed buddhism it's undoubtedly both <laughs> as is usual in the case of these slightly fruitless debates uh but 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 the buddhists had to make many more concessions um and they ran into many more problems in china than they did in a place like sri lanka or for that matter tibet yeah, it's a, a interesting that uh, he, just a simple example that you mentioned, uh, and you mentioned this in the book that for a tradition in China where ancestor worship is really important, re- rebirth is kind of uh, problematic because uh, mm-hmm. if I'm rebir- reborn into another form or another family, then uh, the, the sense of connectivity with ancestors is undermined. Right, right, absolutely, and I, but it should be noted. Um, that in the Indian situation, this is the case too. I mean, connection with ancestors is, is a very basic human need, we might say. And I think we can argue that we, we feel this in our own ways, even in our own modern culture. And there were, um, Buddhists even in India had to try to kind of work it out in such a way that, uh, both their rebirth scheme was accepted or was, you know, was the case, but also somehow allowing for some kind of continuing contact with ancestors. This was not so much of a problem in Hindu traditions, but, but, but often if you just, you know, if you describe one of the realms of samsara in terms of the place where the ancestors might be, you know, the, the world of the fathers or something mm. like that, or the, the hungry ghost realm occasionally, um, you know, you can usually work around that. But yeah, this was definitely a particular problem in China. Um, and, you know, often what you find, I mean, we, we expect, I think, I think maybe I'll just speak for myself, you know, I, I tend, you know, having been raised sort of vaguely Protestant, I suppose, I tend to think that everybody's got a kind of consistent set of doctrines and a way in which they approach the world. But the more you study of the history of religions, the more you realize that very few people except elite intellectuals at the at the sort of highest level maintain any kind of doctrinal con- consistency or purity. And that most people in most places and times have simply gotten by with whatever works. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if, if believing in the particulars of karma and therefore performing virtuous actions will help get you something better in the next life, great. If appealing to some kind of a spirit and offering a sacrifice to that spirit will help you help alleviate some immediate problem, use it. So, you know, the syncretism is a term that often gets a bad name in particularly in Western and I think especially in Christian uh, religious circles because it, it, it connotes this kind of uh, religious miscegenation, if I can use that term, mixing uh, mixing in these different ideas that are actually incompatible. But 
most people in, in this sense of it, uh, most people in most places and times have been syncretists, probably. Um, and uh, I, I mean, a, a, a scholar I know uses a different term, multi, multi-religion, saying most people have been multi-religious. That is, they'll, they'll use whatever is convenient at a, at a given point in time for particular needs they perceive themselves to have. Yeah, and so just just to sort of wrap this up, you mentioned uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. In a, in a way, it's it's a little bit of both, right? It's a little bit of a, an adoption and a, uh, a an adaption uh, culture. Yeah, I think I, I probably, you know, if I'm going to use this uh, rather rough and ready scheme, I guess I would put Tibetan Buddhism more on the adoption culture side because, I mean, again, it, part part of this has to do with this Tibetans latter-day self-presentation, right? The, their, the way they wrote their own histories. Um, they did, of course, like like every, you know, Shin, Shinto was there in Japan before, in some form, even if it didn't have a name before Buddhism arrived. Um, the Tibetans had this burn tradition, which actually was perhaps not native to Tibet either, but imported from somewhere to the West. Uh, but But to the degree that, as in Sri Lanka, um, the Tibetan state came together as an entity and some kind of notion of a vaguely unified Tibetan culture came together, not coincidentally, with the acceptance of Buddhism as something like the state religion. Um, and Buddhism dominated increasingly and then thoroughly dominated Tibetan culture, you know, for the last 1300 years, roughly. Um, to that degree, I would say that that it, it, Tibet falls closer to the adoption side than the adaptation side. But again, as as with Sri Lanka, as with any of these places, there were deities native, you know, that were local in Tibet who got incorporated into the pantheon or the cosmology as like Dharma protectors or or something like that. So so Buddhists made made use of all of these things. But let me just make a final point about this because I know we want to get on to talking about more more recent issues and concerns. But uh, but just going back to your original question uh, about this. Um, I, I think if, if we're going to generalize, which I do a lot in the book, um, it would be fair to say that pretty much every Asian Buddhist culture accepted the fundamentals of the cosmology and the notions of karma as they had been developed in India. Now, in some cases, they took them very seriously, um, followed them to a T, um, you know, elaborated on on them even further. In other cases, they kind of it would it was lip service perhaps more than anything else and you know there are certain traditions you know we think about uh, the chan slash zen tradition um this often comes up in discussions of this as a kind of counterexample to the assertion that most buddhists in most places and times believed pretty literally in karma and rebirth zen is often uh, brought up as as the as the kind of classic pre-modern counterexample and i think it's a complicated matter because it's it's quite true that much of the rhetoric of zen um the literature of zen just leaves these matters off to the side and uh and and there does not seem to be an overwhelming concern of what i'm going to be in my next life and whether my karma in this life is good or bad or somewhere in between um i guess the you know i i, I don't know if zen becomes then the exception that proves the rule 
but I would also say that pretty basic Buddhist notions about karma and reapers still lurk there in the background, even mm. of on in China or, or Zen slash Son in Korea, Tian in Vietnam, all the same tradition under, under different names. And, and, you know, the other thing to say is that, you know, I, I, I make the, the general claim that most Buddhists in most places and most times did believe pretty, pretty literally in this, but, there, there no doubt were people back then, as there are many more now, who, do, who just don't buy it. <laughs> you know, or there were even, even, even those who considered themselves Buddhists. I don't think they were very numerous, quite honestly. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's been some interesting research on sort of, you know, blowback within Buddhist tradition here and there about these ideas. Um, and uh, anyway, so thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. So, um, you made a comment a little while ago um, about the importance, uh, how it's important not to underestimate the the influence of magical practices in Buddhist as well as obviously other other uh, religious contexts and traditions. And I'm wondering how how you would uh, briefly summarize because we do on. Do want to get onto some of these other questions about some modernity, et cetera. But um, how would you how would you summarize the um, the emergence for the folk more folk aspects of religion, Buddhist religion, uh, versus the the higher philosophical, uh, sophisticated stuff um, with regard to rebirth. Magic and rebirth, in other words. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a very it's an interesting and well put question. Um, it seems to me the the way people there's a there's an excellent book published uh, in 2020 by Sam von Scheich called Buddhist Magic, which kind of takes hmm. on a lot of these questions. It's not that he's the first to discuss magic in terms of Buddhism. Many people have done that, uh, you know, with regard to particular cultures, uh, especially anthropologists, but also historians uh, like Gregory Chopin and others like that. Um, but but Van Scheik, although he's working primarily out of Tibetan tradition, he, he's got a synoptic enough view that you, you get a picture of how Buddhism succeeded as a world religion, at least as much because of magical practices as because of its philosophical sophistication, mm-hmm. its, you know, cosmology, ideas of karma and all that. And um, I, I, it's a question of what magic was used for. And I think the the way most scholars take this, and this is not really my bailiwick exactly, but, uh, but you know, my take from uh, most of what I've read from people like Von Sheik and um, Dhananato Vyasekara, again, in, in terms of uh, Sri Lankan Buddhist practices. Uh, there's others who've talked about these elements in China, um, et cetera. Um, is, that, is that magic is used primarily in terms of solving this world problems. That is sickness, fertility, childbirth, um, you know, weather. (laughs) Um, And it's just that, you know, because of course, in a modern context, Buddhists have wanted to present themselves as being very much in tune with, in fact, as prefiguring modern ways of thinking 
yeah. science, right? Um, they this has been very much downplayed uh, in the in the tradition uh, as it's presented in the modern world, and so the, the you know if you actually begin to read you know, through something like the Tibetan canon of, of scriptures, there's a lot of stuff in there that's magical. Um, and even in earlier Buddhism, which, you know, Theravadans will nowadays present as sort of the word of the Buddha as kind of pure philosophical, a way of life, etc. All this stuff is in there too. I mean, maybe not in quite the profusion that it is in various parts of Mahayana and then say Tibetan Buddhism, but but these have these things have always been popular with the people, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, because you know for most people don't have the time, the discipline, the inclination to live a, an ascetic, monastic, contemplative life. They got problems, and uh, you know if uh, if if they if they need immediate help. Um, some kind of magical recourse is is at least one method they might use to to solve particular problems. So, I, I don't, you know, there there probably are practices and theories as well that talk about rebirth in quote magical terms. But I I think of it, and I think most scholars I've read think about it in terms of addressing problems of, of and issues of this life. I mean, of course, you know, you, there are, when you get into something like the Tibetan tradition, there are, if you will, magical techniques for helping one's next rebirth. Um, but, but again, but, uh, you know, this, this, of course, begs the question, what do we mean by magic? Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, you know, it, it's, and that's, uh, that's not one I can necessarily solve for us uh, right here. If you guys have any suggestions, that'd be great. Uh, no, fair uh, enough. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think of ma I think of magic as being a more uh, more of a pragmatic, this worldly issue than a than an eschatological issue. That is, as something that has to do with with what happens to us after death. Where I think the mm -hmm. presumption still is, broadly speaking, that it's karma. But then, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, maybe an Alama's prayers can do something. You know, if we want to call that magic, okay. Um, but but that above all, the the kind of karma and rebirth scheme still is the main operating factor when it comes to death and what happens afterwards. Well, I'm thinking uh, just just as a. a, a... Example from outside Buddhism. Yeah. When I when I was uh, raised Catholic, I would I would go to confession and be and be told to say five Hail Marys or mm -hmm. four, five Our Fathers or something like that. To me, that's that that is a uh, a magical act that is intended to influence. Yeah. In some ways, right? Actually, whether I go to heaven or hell. Yeah. And 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 I'm and and that's why I asked the question because I I think these things interpenetrate they do. maybe more than we appreciate. Yeah. yeah, well, sure, and I mean broadly speaking, to the degree that not only something like say tantric practice with its mandalas and mantras and visualizations and yeah. you know work within the subtle body and all that kind of thing, not only that, but you know, more broadly speaking, ritual life more generally often has a kind of a dual purpose, right? Yeah. In Buddhism and elsewhere, it 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 both it can be useful for immediate purposes, but you know, maybe there's maybe it's planting some seed for a better rebirth. Well, thanks. Yeah, thank you. 
this yeah. idea of a dual purpose is, uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And so, just, just as an, an aside, since uh, I think it's a good time to turn towards uh, modern uh, Buddhism uh, as Buddhism hits the West, but uh, my understanding is one of the most popular by numbers uh, uh, Buddhist traditions in the West is Soko Gakkai, which comes from the yes. Nichiren tradition, yes. and and the uh, uh, repetition of the uh, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo uh, mantra is right. ab- absolutely a magical act. Yes, yes. and uh, and in much, although not certainly not all Nichiren practice, um, the orientation is actually as much toward this worldly benefits as toward some kind of liberation, enlightenment, better future rebirth, etc. I mean, there's mm-hmm. loads of testimonials uh, within uh, Nichiren Shoshu and Soka Gakkai, which is the sort of lay arm of Nichiren Shoshu. Um, but plenty of testimonials as to, you know, what the power of uh, the repetition of Namyo yeah. is. Uh, for the individual involved. I mean, it, it begins to sound, and again, I don't mean this pejoratively or dismissively, but it, as a scholar of religion, you hear echoes of people talking about how prayer, the Christian prayer, say, got them this or that worldly yeah. benefit that they desired, uh, from winning the lottery to winning the NCAA championship, <laughs> whatever it may be. Right, but I, th- I think the I, I think the theory there is that if you get everything you want, then you'll uh, uh, confront the emptiness of craving. Um, and Perhaps, and, and so I think I think it's yeah. seen as, as development. You know, you use the magic yeah. to get everything you want, so that the the clinging isn't there in right. the same way, and then and then you're you yes, prepare yes. the ground for uh, a deeper uh, penetration. Oh, I, I think that's that's true, and I, I certainly know Nichiren Buddhists and. Uh, I think what you say resonates with what I've heard from them as well. Let's get, let's get uh, onto the, the, uh, uh, the encounter of Buddhism with um, the modern Western world and, and vice versa in its, in its complexities. Um, you, 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 you basically say that the West started to take Buddhism seriously around starting around 1800 AD and um and um and outline two periods from then till the second world war and from the second world war onwards and 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 run through through lists of of things that a lot of a lot of western readers will be familiar with at least at least some of them i mean uh, walt whitman I hadn't actually thought of the influence of Buddhism on Walt Whitman, so was, so that was a welcome uh, point that you that you made. I thought, yeah. but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, folks who were who were influenced by Buddhism, both in the 19th and then 20th centuries. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could just uh, very briefly sort of uh, outline how this how this development happened, and we can get on to more contemporary materials. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, as a sort of a backdrop here, I, I, uh, in the book anyway, I, I talk about sort of the problem of defining modernity, which is not actually an easy thing to do. We, we, we tend sometimes to very superficially think about, Oh, there's tradition and then there's modernity and we're in modernity and modernity began. I don't know when with the, <laughs> the enlightenment, so-called enlightenment period in European thought 
Um, is it with the rise of colonialism? Uh, there, there's, there's, a, there's a number of different, you know, yeah. benchmarks as well as definitional factors that, that we could uh, say have something to do with modernity, you know, sort of scientific ideologies and practices, um, you know, the notion of the, the nation state and particular political arrangements uh, within those nation states, um, a, a challenge to religion as a as a dominant cultural and political force, et cetera. We don't we don't need to go into that. But but, uh, you know, in the particular case of Buddhism, although there had been you know, off and on, there had been um, contacts between the Buddhist world and the Western world, um, you know, predating 1800, but they were sporadic. Uh, Stephen Bachelor does a, a very good job of outlining some of this in his book, The Awakening of the West, which I hope is still in print. Uh, but in any case, with with Buddhism, really, it's 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 almost impossible to separate the coming of Buddhism to the West in some sense from colonialism as a particular uh, instantiation of European so-called civilization. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it was it was basically from the materials that were sent back by colonial agents, some of them quite good scholars, uh, sent, sent various texts back to Europe, uh, you know, as, as early as the, well, actually the 1700s, even before that, the Jesuits, for instance, who were in places like uh, Japan or China or, or Tibet, uh, were you know in the 18th century were were doing some actually some fine work on on these quote native materials, but it's uh, it's really I would say in the in the 19th century that that this kind of material began to flow into Europe with any kind of regularity and to become accessible at least to educated people uh, to to any significant degree. And so, you know, early, even great German philosophers like Hegel and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche were aware of Buddhism, how much they understood about it, given the limited materials they had as a separate question. Schopenhauer is the one who's probably most famous for his adoption, <laughs> I would say adaptation of aspects of, of Buddhism. Um, but of course, it, it, it went, you know, and there were various scholars in places like France and Germany who, who were translating texts and beginning to explain the history of Buddhism and the ideas of Buddhism. And in, in the U.S., and it's really on the U.S. that I focus most in the last couple of chapters of the book, in the U.S., the as, as you suggested, the, the the transcendentalists were the first ones to really pick up on their readings of, let's say, Indian literature, uh, which was becoming the rage in Europe to some degree as well. And I, well, I, you know, I, I would not make the case that either Whitman or Thoreau or Emerson was, say, more influenced by Buddhism than. Hinduism. In fact, I would probably argue the opposite, that Hinduism was what they knew better. But mm -hmm. again, given the similarity and the ideas across the traditions, uh, they certainly um, were, were influenced to some degree by both. And uh, you have as well then back across the Atlantic um, later in the 19th century, after the Transcendentalists, you have the rise of this fascinating uh, and important historical and philosophical movement called Theosophy, uh, which was founded by a Russian woman by the name of uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, who claimed 
to be in contact spiritually with these hidden masters across the Himalayas who revealed to her the religion behind all religions, which when you examine the particular doctrines looks a lot like sort of Vedantic Hinduism, uh, but has Buddhist elements as well. And in fact, historically speaking, Blavatsky and uh, figures like Henry Steele Alcott, also a theosophist, Annie Besant, who is president of the Theosophical Society, all were reasonably important important figures in helping to support burgeoning independence movements um, and Buddha and revival, you know, kind of cultural revivals in places like India and Sri Lanka. So theosophy had a great deal to do with the way in which um, Westerners, uh, particularly English speaking Westerners, uh, came to came to understand Buddhism in the late 19th century. And um, there's a one of the hallmark events in in the whole history of religion in the U.S. is the famous Parliament of Religions held in 1893 in Chicago. And uh, this was really the first time that representatives from various religious traditions were invited to speak. Swami Vivekananda was famously, you know, a great orator uh, in on behalf of Hindu tradition. And uh, there were, uh, I think, Soyan Shaku was the, the Zen representative. Uh, Anagarika Dharmapala, the, the representative of, you know, Theravada, more or less Theravada Buddhism. Anyway, some luminaries took, took part in this. And um, one of the immediate and important effects was that the translator for, I believe his name was Soyan Shaku, the, the Zen figure at this parliament was a man by the name of D.T. Suzuki. And Suzuki, um, whose English was already very good, uh, spent a great deal of time in the subsequent three, four decades going back and forth between um, uh, Japan and the U.S., especially uh, hanging out for, you know, with Paul Karras in Illinois and hanging out at Columbia in, in later years and writing a whole hassle of books that purported to explain Zen, which he took to be the essence of Buddhism, to Westerners. And, you know, Suzuki's works, along with in the Tibetan tradition, those of W.Y. Evans Wentz, who was basing himself on translations made by a, a very knowledgeable uh, Tibetan, I mean, he's actually a school teacher, but a very knowledgeable Tibetan named Kazidawa Samdup. Uh, Evans Wentz produced these books like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, Tibet's Great Yogi Milarepa, um, and so forth. You know, three or four very important books in the 20s, mostly, that both gave a, a real sense, a beginning sense of what Tibetan Buddhism was like to people, but also gave it, because this is, was Evan Wentz, Evans Wentz's proclivity, gave it a theosophical cast as well. So the translations are often quite good, the, the Victorian, highly Victorian English notwithstanding. The footnotes are like all, all theosophical for the most part. So if you ignore the footnotes, you can, you get some pretty good translations. Anyway, so you have these, you know, beginnings of a fascination, but it's really uh, after World War II uh, that, that things begin to shift in a significant way. Um, and uh, Buddhism begins to uh, make its presence felt in, we'll, we'll say now, American culture in, in a significant way. And it, it did so at first, I would say, you know, partly because a number of uh, Americans ended up in Japan after World War II, and some of them studied Zen and came back to the U.S. Philip Aitken Roshi, uh, 
uh, let's see, Aiken Roshi, Kaplow Roshi, or the or two that you know, kind of the older generation now now gone of uh, of early American Zen teachers, and at the same time, uh, I think we can't underestimate the cultural significance of the Beats, uh, particularly in this regard, Jack Kerouac. Uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg, Philip Whalen, and slightly later, Allen Ginsberg, who all uh, identified quite strongly as Buddhist and were, of course, cultural touchstones for my generation, of our generation, roughly speaking. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they made, they made Buddhism a matter of some public cultural discussion. Um, but I think the, the, the sort of final phase of this whole process kicks off not 1945, but about 30 years later, uh, roughly speaking, with the end of the Vietnam War, the admission of large numbers of, say, Vietnamese and other South Asian, Southeast Asians to the U.S., uh, the the arrival after 1959 of numbers of Tibetans uh, as well. And so you have, you know, maybe for the first time, uh, you know, both Westerners traveling to places like India or Nepal uh, or to China or not so much China in those days, but Japan, Southeast Asia coming, you know, studying with teachers there. Uh, you know, it's part of the whole sort of countercultural. The West is corrupt. Wisdom lies in the East ethos. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the same time, then they bring back the masters they've met, who then found centers in the US and in other places. And so you have really, it's only really after the, you know, the the early to mid 70s, I think that you get the establishment of centers, whether they're monasteries is another matter, often, and most often they are not, but but centers in which uh, these traditions can be conveyed. And, uh, you know, there's there's then we can, you know, we can get into this in a minute, maybe. But in my own sense is that, you know, given what I said kind of at the outset about modernity and some of the typical views and values yeah. associated with it, um, certain elements of Buddhism were going to be immediately appealing. Meditation was certainly one of them. Roughly speaking, some idea of enlightenment is one of them. I think the ethics of the bodhisattva or just Buddhist ethics more broadly, uh, the, the kind of philosophical subtleties of ideas like emptiness and no self, all of these were culturally appealing, especially to an educated elite. Uh, but some of the more metaphysical ideas, karma and rebirth, I think uh, most prominent among them proved to be problematic. And that then leads to a whole kind of range of reactions to these ideas on the part of modern people in the West and, you know, perhaps particularly in the U.S. Yeah, you you, you break that down into uh, four uh, kind of major responses uh, that uh, contemporary Westerners have to especially these metaphysical notions. Um, and, and maybe we could talk a little bit about Literalism, neo-traditionalism, modernism, and secularism, as uh, as as you, as you describe yeah. them in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, broadly speaking, and again, it it, it should be said that I also talk about the limitations of these categories. Yeah. That there, there's much crossover. There are some people who uh, that you might identify, for instance, the the Dalai Lama. Um, who you know, at one moment maybe a traditionalist, at another he he might. 
he he go he probably runs the whole gamut and that there are many other people who could be described similarly but that again as a kind of rough and ready classification there is a kind of spectrum that runs from what i would call uh, literalism and and this i think is represented most often simply by people who come from those traditions and are not especially trying to cater to what they think Western ideas are. Uh, I think particularly of many Tibetan lamas that I've studied with. My, my own primary teacher, Geshe Zopa in Madison, was very much a traditionalist. This is, this is what the tradition says. This is the way it is. Um, deal with it. <laughs> and um, I think you can find uh, equivalent figures who came from Theravada traditions, from uh, some Japanese traditions as well. Um, but I, I th and, and you'll find, of course, certain Western followers of these teachers who will go right along with it um, and, and, and be literalists. Now, I'm not saying literalists down to every last iota, every last degree of it, but, but broadly speaking, what, what they're talking about is true. Um, so moving, I guess, from right to left, if we can, if we tend to imagine things that way, the, the more conservative view being to the right, with the next uh, group I talk about is neo-traditionalists. And this is people who are much more aware of they, they, what they feel the need to be to, uh, to show that the traditional cosmology and, I, and metaphysics are true, but to approach it through uh, more modern sounding and more, in some cases, scientific ways of putting things. So here, I think you would find a number of people. I think, I think of Alan Wallace as being a, a, a prominent example of this, but he's, he's far from the only one who will will try to try to argue. And I think you know, I think uh, those who talk about Buddhist science. Uh, often, I think His Holiness the Dalai Lama has sometimes adopted this standpoint as well. Anyway, to say that um, actually, if we if we analyze philosophically, um, you know, materialist critiques of Buddhist metaphysics don't necessarily hold up. Plus, scientific investigations of one kind or another may help to establish at least the possibility, if not the absolute certainty, of something like rebirth. And in other cases, you know, this is slightly farther afield, perhaps, uh, you'll have people who will say that, you know, the whole materialist cosmology of modernity is itself actually turning reality on its head, that reality has less to do with some, some kind of combinations of blind matter, but in fact, has more to do, as Alan Wallace puts it, with information, or as others would put it, you know, the universe is more mental than physical, and the physical is perhaps derivative of the mental. All of these are moves that a thinker can make to reassert traditional ideas, but within a, a more modern framework. Yeah. Yeah. Then, because should I keep keep going? Yeah, please. Yeah. So the um, so the, the 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 moving still moving you know sort of to the left of center, if you will, uh, the the position that I call modernist <clears throat> tends to believe that the traditional arguments, whatever they may be, for the reality of rebirth and say the details of karma, simply are not persuasive, um, and that even neo traditionalist attempts to establish them fall short in one respect or another. Um, and that in fact, 
perhaps the best we can do is to be agnostic on those metaphysical questions um, and to, and, but not necessarily, not to, re, not to just say, oh, we just ditch rebirth. I mean, this is, you know, I, I don't know whether the person Stuart uh, talked about uh, having lunch with at the beginning of our talk uh was was implying this but but basically i mean there are other scholars that i quote some of them very fine scholars uh richard hayes for instance says in one of his essays that you know if 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 buddhism is ever to be meaningful in the west basically the first thing it's got to ditch is the idea of uh of karma and rebirth because it just ain't gonna wash here um that's the modernist does not exactly do that in my view the the modernist uh says that we we have to take these ideas seriously because buddhists have taken these ideas, ideas seriously but since we can't accept the metaphysics and cosmology literally since we're not persuaded by arguments for them uh the probably the best we can do is to take them psychologically, symbolically, existentially, uh, take your pick yeah. um, and, and, and make them meaningful in that respect. Very much, I would say, in the ways in which liberal Protestants or liberal Christians often take, say, Jesus's miracles. Uh, what they do with the resurrection, I don't know, but <laughs> there's, there's a range on that, I'm sure, too. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's what I take a typically uh, modernist view to be. And I would say that... Um, you know, Stephen Batchelor is a prime example of this, although he he he's not easy to classify either uh, because he's actually got a book uh, called Secular Buddhism, right. which uh, in which he self identifies as secular. But he also was the one who, as best I can tell, coined the phrase Buddhist agnosticism. So he's I mean, he's, he's a very interesting figure. Uh, in any case, the, the farthest to the left, I guess I would in, in my uh, way of thinking about this is that uh, is 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 what I call secularism, which basically says, yeah, we gotta this stuff has got to be ditched, um, and um, you know if Buddhism is going to have any place in the modern world or anything to say to modern people, we've just got to focus in on those. We've got to skip the metaphysics entirely, you know, ditch the cosmology and focus on meditation examining you know the nature of mind being compassionate um you know some sort of basic basic uh, highlights of of the tradition uh, so, <laughs> yeah, that's a good yeah. word for yeah. it <laughs> so but uh yeah I, and since you mentioned agnosticism and uh you uh particularly toward the end of the book uh kind of self-identify as moving in that direction and this notion of acting as if, uh, you know, what does the tradition do? I wanted to raise this question because it kind of gets back to the magical question a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, um, a friend of ours, um, uh, you may know Ken McLeod, who was a, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who, yeah. So he, he, he's told the story of uh, uh, when he was translating for Kahlo Rinpoche that uh, a Western student asked this question about, I think it's Edom, uh, Edom practice of, about whether, you know, is the, is, are the gods that we visualize in uh, Edom practice uh, real? Mm -hmm. And Ken says it took about 30 minutes to actually translate this uh, for Kalo Rinpoche. To, to, to Kalo Rinpoche, yeah, so I understand right, the question. Right. No, because, because it was like the whole question didn't, it, the whole frame of the question didn't make any sense. And ultimately when Kalo Rinpoche got it, he said, 
of course it's real because it has an effect. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I, I was I was thinking about that when I was uh, reading that the, the latter part of the book because I was thinking, you know, this whole even the question of the ontological status of rebirth and karma uh, almost is immaterial to the traditional Buddhist mind because uh, you know to take your comment about pragmatism uh, uh, and maybe expand it to a larger <laughs> field than just this world problems. There's a kind of pragmatism about the teaching of rebirth and karma that if you allow yourself to inhabit the belief, mm -hmm. it has a transformative uh, power. Yeah. And if you insist on bracketing it, and applying a Western notion of uh, uh, existence onto it, you uh, insulate yourself from that transformative power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the points I try to make towards the end is is that, as you suggest, I introduce this notion of the as if, which I, I think more or less aligns me with Buddhist modernism and with a certain degree of uh, Buddhist agnosticism as well, because I confess that I have not been persuaded by, by the arguments that I've seen. Um, and yet um, I, I, I can't simply toss out, uh, toss everything out and, and practice what strikes me as you know, kind of a Buddhist flavored um you know, uh, secular humanism, which which I think is where you where you end up, right? With with, with secular Buddhism, um, and you know, one of the points I make there is is that I mean, I think I think we all need to be very humble <laughs> about the cosmos that we live in. I, I I'm not persuaded by X or Y, but I've got limited intellectual capacity, as many people have reminded me over the years. And uh, um, well, this book is not an example of that. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, um, but but I, you know, I I simply don't know whether you know the past and future lives exist, whether karma operates even in some sense the way Buddhists describe it doing the, the universe is surpassingly strange and it's it's quite possible that what buddhists have described um or something like it is the quote the case but i think you're making a, a kind of deeper point which is that what is the case yeah. is, is is itself thrown into some suspicion i mean i um <clears throat> zongsar kensei rinpoche um did a very interesting series of talks a few years ago at Berkeley on the asking the question, do you have to believe in rebirth to be a Buddhist? And that's, that's certainly a question that uh, I've, I've wrestled with. And I think a lot of people have wrestled with, and I expected him to, you know, get into Dharmakirti's arguments and the strengths and possible weaknesses of Dharmakirti's arguments. And he, he did a little bit, he did a, pretty much the same thing as you described Ken McLeod saying Kalu Rinpoche, the, the move he made, which is to just sort of say, well, you know, <laughs> reality is is not quite what we think it is. It's not this hard and fast. Oh, you know, the ontological status of this is definitely exists, definitely doesn't exist. It's it's much more fluid than that. And I, I, I mean, it should be said that in the case of Zongsar Kensei Rinpoche, I think he was making a classic kind of Dzogchen move, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, perfection move. And I, in the case of Kalu Rinpoche, he was making a classic kind of Mahamudra, great seal move. So he was he was 
he was simply taking it to a different level. Now that, you know, the, the kind of hard ass philosopher in me was disappointed in what Song Sar Kensei Rinpoche said, because I said, damn it, I want to know what you think about Dharmakirti's mm-hmm. art. I want another angle on it that would maybe <laughs> persuade me. I didn't get it. And uh, but, 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 but I'm sorry, go ahead and finish. No, 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 that's that's fine. That's good. <laughs> well, I, I just want to jump in here. Uh, one of the I'm, I'm, I, I just tried <laughs> to find in that last chapter a, a phrase um, uh, that I wasn't familiar with. Although the, the meaning is very familiar in it, and, and I translated it in, in my head to um, um, the quote um, that um, the mark of a great mind is the ability to hold two opposing thoughts simultaneously. Yeah. And right. I forget that it's negative, negative something or other. Capability. Negative capability. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah Keats uh, developed this. That's right. right. That's right. And I didn't know that. Yeah, then Kerouac and uh, other beats picked up on it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but it, but it seems to me that 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 is that is a way out of this dilemma of of is it X or is it Y? Right. It's you both. Know, and it's both both and 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 neither. I mean, that's one of the things you know. I I, I had uh, you know I'm grateful for the fact that I. Um, with a friend, with a lead, led by a friend of ours, uh, I read through most of the, um, well, all of the Pali canon mm. pretty much years ago. Yeah. And, and that, and I, so I became very familiar with this, uh, uh, the rhetorical move of, of both and neither. And, you know, that, that sort of, that sort of thinking. And I right. thought that is a very flexible and interesting way. I, I use it in my own meditation now, to, mm-hmm. to be quite, to be, to be quite mm-hmm. frank. So, um, so, so it's very helpful to be able not to have to settle out. I think agnostic, the word agnosticism doesn't entirely encapsulate no. that. No, um, no, it doesn't encapsulate the positive side of it. Right. Exactly. Kind of exactly. Humbleness or ability to move. From one level to another and see possibilities in all of them yeah there's, yeah. Another, there's another gloss on this that uh I'll, I'll quote a uh a friend of mine from the fourth way tradition and then modify the quote but uh he made the comment that a belief is an emotional relationship with a lie <laughs> which which but I, what i want to change that to is that for a belief to be uh transformative we have to have an emotional relationship with it yeah yeah and and since the problem, one of the problems in Buddhism is the movement, as it were, of energy from the head to the heart, <laughs> it seems like that uh, an emotional relationship to the canon and, and some of the, even the metaphysical concepts is an essential component to affecting yeah. a transformation of the heart regard. And, and, and then, and then again, to, you know, the point that I made about Kalo Rinpoche, who cares whether, you know, there's an objective uh, uh, truth that we can stake right. out if that right. transformation takes place? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's quite right. And uh, yeah, yeah. I uh, the, the the question though that still arises, you know, for me and I think for other people I've talked to about my notion of behaving and acting and even thinking as if all this were true. Uh, your your point about head and heart, right, or an emotional connection. If you if there's a part of you that 
thinks, well, you know, maybe not. Does that provide, do you have to have the, 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 the complete fake? <laughs> well, well, let's, well, let's, let's, let's think about it in terms of acting. Uh, yeah. If uh, a method actor truly inhabits the role, it's a very powerful performance. Right. Right. Uh, if if they're not fully inhabiting the role, yeah, maybe not so much. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a to me the answer is like a it's a matter of degree. Mm-hmm. You know how how far can you go? I mean, and what does it even mean yeah. <laughs> to uh, to? Uh, I, I mean, what I loved about your comment about Donald Lopez and, and what you called radical literalism, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I was kind of refreshing to read read that there is a there is a response that says, wait a second, you know. This whole question of uh, that even being posed is yeah. privileging the Western uh, materialist paradigm. Right. Maybe we should, you know, examine that uh, critically in the same way, or be willing to recognize that our attachment to that is as irrational mm-hmm. as yeah. we project an attachment to right. uh, a karmic eschatology is. I mean, right, 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 and not try so hard as so many people seem to do to line up Buddhism with science. Um, Lopez's point in this wonderful little book he has called The Scientific Buddha, His Short and Happy Life, which I recommend (laughs) highly. I I use it very successfully in classes over the years. Um, I mean, his point is that this this attempt is, that, that whole attempt is utterly misbegotten and fails and 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 fails to appreciate that Buddhism simply taken on more traditional, if you will, or if you will, literalist grounds poses a radical challenge to Western ways of thinking about things, and uh, and and should not simply be folded under the you know brought under the aegis of you know science and uh, democracy and whatever else it it may be. Well, I, I think I think the point you're making is or can be could be restated as essentially it's a, it's a colonialist appropriation of yeah. of, of ideas about the Buddha right. or course, about Buddhism. It, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But of course, as with all colonialist appropriations, it's very complicated because some of the earliest Buddhist modernists, if you will. Um, however, we might want to classify them were themselves Asians. Yeah. Now, to what degree had they internalized colonial structures, Western Enlightenment ideologies? That becomes a very complicated question. People like like Dharmapala and uh, and uh, you know DT Suzuki and so forth. Well, we had we had a recent conversation with uh, Kate um, Crosby. Crosby, thank you. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and, and um, she's wonderful. Uh, in in uh, describing the complexities of 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 how this was happening in Asia sent for for the last centuries. Yep, yep, absolutely. No, she she's got this wonderful book, Esoteric uh, Terrapada. Right. Exactly. Is, uh, I mean, talk about talk about magic. <laughs> yeah, pretty fair amount of that that turns out to be kind of the dominant meditative tradition of Theravada up until. The, the the kind of mindfulness movement began in Burma or Myanmar in the in like the late 18th early 19th century so yeah exactly um, yeah. yeah and yet this is the way that you know 
people tend to present Buddhism. You know, I had a uh, Stephen Beyer, who was one of my uh, uh, grad school advisors, once said to me, uh, this is this is probably about 1977, 1978. He said, basically said, mark my words, Buddhism will succeed in the West to the degree that it becomes psychotherapy. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of critics of that. <laughs> yes, well, there are, of course. But, but, and yet, um, I think that there's a, a great deal to that. Um, yeah. As a historical observation, and as a yeah, well, I think kind of uncanny. <laughs> yeah, and and in fairness, uh, Buddhism I think has been transforming uh, psychology. Uh, so true. so so it's not it's not like it's. Uh, uh, I mean, yes, and uh, mm-hmm. there's there's still this. You know the 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 question I have with the secularist project and with the psychologicalization of Buddhism is, mm-hmm. is uh, still gets back to this question of when you pick and choose, uh, you may be separating out uh, a transformative potential from the tradition. Yep. When simply surrendering to the tradition in one sense, uh, uh, which doesn't mean entirely or, or having to uh, sign an affidavit of, of your beliefs, but rather just, as you say, acting as if as completely as possible mm-hmm. allows the tradition to work on you in a certain way. And no, then you can, and then you can decide for yourself whether that's uh, efficacious. Right. Well, well, that's very well put. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, so this word belief becomes uh, very difficult. Christianity, uh, you know, it, at least starting 400 AD, basically configured itself as about the beliefs you were willing to profess or not willing to profess. Yeah. And, and, and I think that legacy is part of what we're, what we're yes. um, wrestling with. Yeah. No. As applies to Buddhism. Yes. Yes. No, I think, you know, Western ways of thinking about religion yeah, they're they're creed based, they're denominational. Um, all the all the you know sixteen, seventeen hundred years of that in the West has has shaped how any of us, or how so many of us anyway, tend to approach being religion. You know, I when I was younger, you know, sort of in my teens, it was it was all it had nothing to do with sort of efficacious practices. It was all you know what you know, what philosophical standpoint makes sense, you know, and to me, Christianity made no sense whatsoever. It was only later that I came to appreciate the subtleties of, of which I don't, I've only begun to, but, you know, the, the subtleties of Christian theology and some of the ways in which that mm-hmm. might actually be regarded, let alone what faith actually means and what the f- connection is between faith and belief, not necessarily the same thing at all yeah. um, as Christians understand it. And yet I took it as just sort of the, the same, you know, and, and I think sometimes Buddhist teachers, when they present the notion of quote faith or confidence, as they like to say um, in Buddhist tradition, they will, they will sometimes, I think a little simplistically talk about, oh, well, you know, they won't necessarily name names, but it's clear that they think that in something like Christianity, it's just blind faith, you know, blind belief in things that you can't prove and you believe them anyway. Um, whereas Buddhists, you know, take certain things on trust and then check them out for themselves. And this makes it kind of scientific. And yeah, and, and, and uh, I think it, 
it misses a lot of uh, a lot of the nuance in what terms like belief and faith and confidence all mean. Yeah, I mean, you, you quote uh, the uh, Kalama uh, Sutta right. um, in your in your book, and 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 that's this. When I first encountered it many years ago, it's okay. just a beautiful uh, a summary of of how to treat this just this sort of thing, right. and. And and as, and and to some extent, I, th I think it gets latched. It is latched onto by the folks, the secularists, who 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 take it a little further than I think the Buddha would would have meant to to have it taken. Yeah, that's my reading of it too. And I think that when you get interpretations of it by modern scholars of Theravada, like say Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, and, and you, but even if you just, even without the help of somebody like that, if you read it contextually, yes, it's, you know, it's not necessarily just a, uh, kind of manifesto for empiricism. Right. Yeah. Although it's, you know, it, it does give a certain cast and a slightly skeptical cast to what was often, uh, believed by Indians of the Buddha's time or centuries after to be sufficient grounds for accepting certain ideas and practicing certain things. Um, it is, it is a, you know, there is a pragmatism to it, which I think is, is hard to avoid in early Buddhist tradition, but I would argue all through Buddhist tradition in various ways. Well, religion is is often a dance between belief and pragmatism. It seems to me, yeah, yeah. and 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 the, the topic of magic, as that we were discussing earlier, is a is kind of an example of that. To, to yeah. part, I mean, by no means um, comprehensive, but but it's how people are living their lives that uh, um, that influences these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a mutual feedback loop of, of some sort. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the, and the, the, the theologies or the philosophies uh, often trail the practices. I mean, it's, it's not always uh, uh, top down. It's often bottom up in the way these things actually played themselves out historically. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. There, there's a, um, uh, actually a, a chaos magician named Lionel Snell, who wrote a book called My Years of Magical Thinking. And, <laughs> and in that he, he articulates, you know, four different ways of thinking, religious, scientific, magical, and artistic. Oh, okay. And, and, you know, religion is concerned with, you know, is it true or is it revealed? Uh, science tends to think, you know, does it, uh, is it provable? Right. Magical thinking is uh, more about uh, does it work, mm -hmm. yeah. and 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 so you adopt the the what, what he's affecting there is uh, without taking any sort of uh, ontological uh, commitment or uh, right. uh, about the real reality of magic and magical forms. It's like if it works subjectively, if you experience a benefit from it, then it's usable. Yeah, and and at the point where it doesn't. Uh, well, it doesn't matter, but in a way, he he's affecting an argument that's not unlike uh, Alan Wallace's argument about the uh, uh, validity of the subjective eye as a uh, right, tool. Right. It's right. just that the subjective eye doesn't lend itself to a, uh, a repeatable, controllable experiment right. in the scientific right. sense. Right. 
And so in this, this whole realm, we kind of get, we get into these tug of wars where a lot of the arguments that are being made now from a materialist scientists are more in the religious category than they are in the, uh, provable category or the, uh, and so it, it's, it doesn't seem like the program, and you describe this in the book of trying to, you know, resuscitate Dharma Kirti's arguments uh, 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 as the hard problem of consciousness or to go, you know, make, reiterate the modern arguments about idealism is going to be particularly convincing or does that, and that doesn't even matter. It's really what matters is, does it work? Does it yeah. Do we, yeah. do we become better people? Do we, do we, do we find within ourselves a, um, uh, uh, that faith, uh, that make, you know, it's hard to describe what that is, but, uh, I guess you kind of know it when you, uh, experience it. <laughs> so unless you're kidding yourself. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, uh, we're, we're almost at the conclusion here. I will refrain from, uh, with tongue in cheek asking you what uh, what uh, realm you hope to be reborn into yourself, but I will ask you about f uh, future projects yes. uh, here here in this body um, that okay. uh, you may want people to know about. Well, I mean, I'm currently at work on a book about Saraha, uh, the great uh, Buddhist uh, poet saint, if you will, of mm -hmm. who knows ninth, tenth century India, um, who is a, a foundational figure for the Great Seal or Mahamudra traditions of Tibet, but also a very important uh, um, figure in, in, in sort of Indian religious history as well. This is for a series that Chambala publishes called Lives of the Masters. Oh, so yes, I, yes, I'm aware of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there have been a number of good books on that. I don't know if this will be one of them, but I've, it's been enjoyable working on him because I've been reading his stuff and translating it over mm -hmm. the years to some degree. And this is a chance to kind of bring all that together. And after the, I've, I've two other things that, you know, and this is all in the, I should live so long category, right? <laughs> but, but, um, probably the one that will, I, I might do, I might expand this whole idea of as if, you know, and the contrast between as is and as if into a short book, you know, on, on sort of being Buddhist in, in the 21st century. I'll, I'll vote for that. Yeah. I think, okay. I, yeah. I, I think other, that would be much needed. <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, uh, people have encouraged me in that direction anyway. Um, the other one, uh, perhaps slightly more of a research project is a book on Buddhism and the beats, mm. uh, which I've had in mind for a long time. I taught a course on that at Carleton, um, back, I don't know, not quite 10 years ago. And, so, you know, I've been reading the beats all my adult life and, um, and, and nobody has really dug into this question very much. There was a wonderful anthology now out of print called Big Sky Mind. That's an anthology of beat Buddhist writings, but, uh, but to, to kind of look at important beats vis-a-vis -vis Buddhism strikes me as, as interesting. Again, just perhaps to, pay respect to a generation that now is almost entirely gone yet yeah. inspired uh, mine ours uh, to to a considerable degree so those are the the two that are sort of just on uh you know back burners with saraha being foremost at the moment well well thank you so much for this wonderful conversation i've really enjoyed it and i enjoyed the book and think it is a 
it 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 fills a um uh, an arena of thought in buddhism that has not been addressed adequately in the past so so uh Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for joining us on The Mystical Positivist. Hey, always good to talk to you. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Roger Jackson, author of Rebirth, A Guide to Mind, Karma, and Cosmos in the Buddhist World, the first truly comprehensive overview of rebirth across the major Buddhist traditions, published this year by Shambhala. Roger Jackson is Professor Emeritus of Asian Studies and Religion at Carleton College. He has nearly 50 years of experience with the study and practice of Buddhism, particularly in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.